Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today. If you haven't yet turned to Psalm chapter 15, I love going through the Psalms. And we are in Psalm 15 tonight. You do a series in the Psalms and you go one at a time. You got a lot of you got a lot of Sunday nights covered, don't you? <laughs> Reminds me of the I think it was uh, a pastor went through Ephesians and it took him six years. Now Ephesians got six chapters, right? It took him six years. And at the end of that time, somebody asked the parishioner, what do you think? And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I still love my pastor, but I sure hate that book of Ephesians. <laughs> Being tongue in cheek, obviously, and things. But uh, I actually uh, realized that uh, another time when I had uh, taught through the Psalms on a, on a night like this, I had actually combined 12, 13, and 14. Uh, and so uh, that would have been one week instead of three. And so uh, we may combine some as we go along. We may not because uh, uh, I just uh, really enjoy getting together even as we think about how well our children and youth are being taught in the rest of the building. So I'm going to read Psalm 15 here. It says it's a Psalm of David. And it says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Verse 2, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness, and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, I think that means exorbitant interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Whoo, there's a lot to unpack there. And if we have to be consistently perfect in all those things to go to heaven, well, we better pack it in, guys, because uh, I, my, my, I failed a couple of those tests in there, you know, or have at times. And so uh, we're definitely going to think about this from a New Testament perspective, but it is a tremendous psalm and gives us a lot to think about. Uh, so this psalm asks the two questions. Who may abide in your tabernacle? Now, David wanted to build the temple, but that got built after his life, so it was the tabernacle for him. And then he says, who may dwell on your holy hill? Now, I think for the longest time, I only thought about this psalm uh, one way. I viewed it in terms of how far short I follow these things, and I kind of felt despair, you know, kind of like when you just... Uh, you, you understand this is what it takes to measure up, and you realize, ooh, I don't measure up. I fall short of those things. And there are some scriptures like that to show us that indeed in our own strength, in our own behavior, in our own words that come out of our mouth, we don't measure up, right? There is a gap between us and God. And, you know, that's the, this, this, this kind of teaching helps build toward, in a sense, build toward uh, Romans 3, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the only way we're going to be justified is because of what Jesus has done. So, um, so that's what I've thought of, the Old Testament law, which often drives us to despair and makes us admit our need of a Savior. And that's absolutely a theologically uh, sufficient way to look at this psalm. 
But I want to uh, think about it in practical terms most of tonight, because this psalm gave the humble, God-fearing Israelite, man or woman, and by extension us looking on today and learning what we can from it, it gave them a way to evaluate, there's your fill in the blank, to evaluate their hearts as they came near to the tabernacle and later to the temple. And we remember these things were sung. And sometimes you uh, get a song in your heart and it helps make you think about uh, being ready to go to church. You know, um, we think about another song. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And that's actually in the singing psalms that they would sing on the pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem. And they'd sing it as they went up the steps at the temple later as well. Um, so a means of evaluation, a means of looking and saying, huh, do I really care about the things of God? Do I fear God? Uh, do I want to please Him? And it also reinforces basic expectations God has for us. And expectations are a good thing if we use them as our rule for life. And another way to say this is being people of grace does not allow us to be what we would call antinomian in our approach. Does that word bless your heart, antinomian? Sometimes preachers are accused of being antinomian, and sometimes it's a, it's a true statement. They're rejecting a good use of the law. The word antinomian means anti-law. So anti-law. If a, uh, a, a Christian, you probably have heard it said, we are not under law, but under grace. And some well-meaning but misguided uh, Christians, and sometimes led by uh, too licentious of a preacher, say, hey, since we don't live under law, then they almost give people a blank check to sin, presuming that God's grace will forgive and everything will just be okay on the other side of that. So uh, that's what many of the Puritans who really appreciated God's grace and understood that we're saved by what God does, not what we do, and God initiates that. Many of the Puritans spoke of preachers that are antinomian in knowing that we're under grace and not under law. These preachers basically will not call for holy living. And then we come to a psalm like this, and it's a big call for holy living, you know. And so 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul wrote, We know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. So there's a legitimate and an illegitimate way to use the law. Said the Danny Campbell way, there's a right way to use the law. It doesn't save, but it correctly serves as training wheels for life. When you learn to ride a bike, you don't need training wheels anymore. And so when Galatians says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, now that we're under Christ, we're no longer under a tutor. It just means our motivations have become so much higher than trying to win God's approval by getting the 100% score that we all fall short of. We don't. So the law can't save us, but the law reveals our need for a Savior. And then when we turn to Christ, we embrace uh, a law like do not lie a law like do not steal, a law like do not commit adultery. We understand that relates to all of the areas of sexual purity, you know. And we, uh, you know, when you think about the Ten Commandments and how every command in the Old Testament kind of traces back to those, we know that there's a civil portion of the law that said don't eat pork and, uh, you know, um, penalty, what to do with leprosy in your house and those things. And that was for Israel at the time before Christ came. So when we say that we're not under law, it's those type things that we're not trying to um, live up to by God's Spirit now 
through faith, but we certainly want to still be in on the moral law and appreciate that the ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ, His sacrifice for our sins on the cross. Uh, let's turn to 1 Timothy 1 and see some of Paul's words about that. First Timothy chapter 1, that includes the verse that I gave you there, but let's start in verse 7, because it speaks of those who desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So Jesus chastised the Pharisees for making the law an end in itself. Uh, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have life, yet these are they which testify of me. You know, we, we don't just get the commands uh, to try to do them apart from growing in a relationship with God. Uh, and some had reduced it to that. So verse 80 says, We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So the law can't save us, but it certainly reveals how far short we fall of God's expectations, uh, you know, expectations and glory. It reveals to us our need of a Savior, and we're so thankful that Christ is that Savior. It makes clear what we need to repent of. We meet that Savior in the New Testament, Jesus Christ. We know that we're saved by faith through grace, and we live by faith through grace. We weren't saved by keeping the law. We don't keep our salvation by obeying the law, but we do use it lawfully as our plumb line of what we hope to do and not to do as we walk by faith in Jesus. So Gary's a guy I've seen use a plumb line before, you know, and many of you have used a plumb line before. You know, you spread it out over something. You need a straight line. You need to know exactly what's there. And then you pull up the thing and it pops and you got that line across there. The scriptures in a couple places talks about the plumb line. Amos, the wonderful prophet preacher, I believe, was one of the guys that talked about the plumb line. And he said, basically, you know, uh, you, you, you're going to have a, a really odd life if you don't use God's plumb line of the scriptures. You're going to have an odd building if you don't use a plumb line when you're building and you're not going to have the right kind of life if you don't use God's measuring stick, you know. So I think about tests. I think about tests you take. Um, did you hear that story uh, from out of Florida? 7,400 degrees, nursing degrees given out by, a fraudul by fraudulent schools in Florida. And Florida has rules that allow those to be used in other states. And the federal government recently has discovered 7,400 fraudulent degrees given out by mostly schools in South Florida. Now, do you want to have that nurse take care of you somewhere? Do you want them taking care of your loved ones in a nursing home? <laughs> no, you, know, you sure don't, do you? Uh, and that sort of thing. It's, it's good to have the standards be known so that you can live by them. The fact that God in His grace will forgive us of falling short of what He's called for doesn't mean we still don't need to learn the content of the moral law. 
and by faith to start applying it in our lives. To, you know, in other words, it can't save us, but we should never give up on trying to be totally trustworthy people, totally sexually pure people, totally this, totally that, all the way through there. Um, and so by God's grace, we don't have to pass the test to go to heaven, uh, but the same law that we... Uh, looked at before and realized, oh, I don't do those things, so I, I can't be saved, uh, you know, and we realize we're saved through faith in Christ, that same law, then we turn around and say, whew, I don't have to worry about the test. I passed it. It's a pass-fail. Jesus passed me, you know. But if I'm going to live the abundant life He called for me to live, I, I need by His Spirit to learn His Word in every one of these areas, you know. And so that's kind of how we go about. So, um, so this psalm gives 11 answers to the two questions of verse 1. Uh, and that was, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Essentially, the two questions are addressing what's important where God lives. There's your fill in the blank. What's important where God lives? And I'm going to just go down through these verses together with you and look at them, and then we'll come back and spend a little more time on them. But of those 11 things, what's important where God lives? What does He value uh, from those who are His? And when we gather together, when we're going to, for the Jews, the tabernacle, then the temple, and for Christians when we gather in worship. And so if we think about it that way, God values honesty. Verse 1, verse 2, I'm sorry, he who walks uprightly, he values an upright walk. Um, you know, you talk about somebody uh, that's just downright, no good, you know, they're down, downright behavior. He wants us to walk uprightly. Uh, isn't it interesting? Evolution said, no, we come from animals, you know, uh, and evolution uh, was basically put there so that those who imbibed it could have a way to view the world without God in it and say, well, if we came from animals, it's okay to act like animals. You know, at the Scopus Monkey Trial, there was a cartoon that had a monkey saying, am I my keeper's brother? <laughs> monkey in a cage saying, am I my keeper's brother? You know, uh, which was pretty funny. Um, so with animalistic behavior, we say, well, gosh, you know, I can't get up mad at my cat for going and catting around, right? He's a, he's a cat. That's what they do. Uh, animalistic behavior, that's just what they do, you know. But we can say to a man and a woman, no, no, God, you're different than animals. You're created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, he has a higher purpose for you than to cat around like that, to act on your animalistic urges. In fact, uh, you know, the, the ability to act uh, you know, against just the instinct to preserve self uh, separates us, right? It's the soldier that's willing to take that bullet, you know, for a buddy he's uh, serving with or for the country back home uh, for the advance of liberty, you know. It's the uh, person that sees somebody that's fallen onto the railroad track uh, jumping down there and getting them off of there just as the train goes by and pushing them off ahead of themselves. So if somebody gets hit, it's going to be them versus instead of the person that's fallen in. We can act contrary to self-preservation instincts. You know, we're upright, not downright. And that goes along with the second thing we have here, doing the right thing. Uh, so, he who works righteousness. Don't be scared by the word righteousness. Just think of doing the right thing. Uh, so, the word is righteous, uh, but it means to do the right thing. 
what would Jesus do if he was here? You know, uh, one of the things that the um, prophets often complain and preach against Israel for was God had given them the law about taking care of widows, taking care of orphans. Uh, you know, they knew, understood what it was like to be a foreigner in another land in Egypt. And so you leave some of your crops for the poor and the foreigner so they can have, uh, they can uh, eat those even while they're trying to get established in your land and things like that. Uh, and he said, God said all these wonderful things to do and, and you're not doing the right thing. You're exploiting people instead of doing the right thing. And so we walk upright personally. We also want to do the right thing in our interactions with others. Jesus said the whole law can be summed up, do unto others as you would have done unto you, right? Um, the third one is speaking the truth in your heart. So he says, he who does not backbite with his tongue. Um, and uh, speaking the truth in your heart. And we could invert um, uh, what's there in verse 3. Do not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up reproach against his friend. So you got speaking the truth in your heart, no slander with our tongues or backbiting, no harming of your friend, no reproach against your friend, no discrediting your neighbor, no evil toward your neighbor. All those are the kind of things. Um, so we'll get to more, that more in a minute. We're just walking down through them now. But um, certainly uh, whether you're together with your family whether you're uh, at a halftime speech and there's plenty to look at each other and say uh, what's gone wrong in the first half so we can get it right for the second half, whether it's being at church together and church uh, little meetings and things together and things you have to have, uh, it's very easy uh, for the negative to come up pretty quick, you know, and to uh, say things that uh, you get mad about and cause anger and hurt and things like that. So uh, speak truth, yes, but don't slander, don't backbite. Uh, don't discredit, don't do evil toward your neighbor, don't reproach your friend, and all those different things. Um, despising the one rejected of the Lord, despising the uh, vile. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, we live in a land that lifts up despicable behavior. Uh, I remember in the 80s growing up, you know, the way we said something was good was by saying, that's bad. <laughs> and there's actually later on when I became a Christian and saw the words of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah said, Whoa to the people who call good bad and bad good, you know. And uh, we know that increasingly uh, uh, an America that doesn't acknowledge Christ and doesn't acknowledge the Bible, what do they say about us Christians? You're hateful for reinforcing biblical morality. It's impossible for you to say you love because you hate, you know. How do you hate? Well, you believe that sexual, uh, you know, sexuality is a gift for marriage and to even say somebody's in sin by not exploring their sexuality and doing this and that and the other, you get accused of all kinds of things. Um, but here, um, David lays it out here, uh, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. And of course, we have to as Christians think about Ephesians 6 that says our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. And so it is helpful to remember it's the sin that we're supposed to hate, uh, not the people, right? We hate what sin does to people, but we hold out hope for the change of the people. Uh, that's sometimes a little less charitably said in the Psalms when they were thinking about their enemies around them. And listen, it was an a Old Testament uh, time uh, where um, 
you know, they, on the one hand, were called to uh, be good to their neighbors and foreigners and even leave parts of their crops for the foreigners so they could get a hand up. But they'd also all the time have the Philistines or the Amalekites or whoever coming to attack. And David was in on those and remembered having to defend and push away, you know. And he uh, wasn't so much for those vile things, the gods of those peoples being exalted in the land, you know. And so he would use his kingly authority to tear down high places that were set up to those things. And so you cipher it all out. But um, if it's when we think about people, it means not celebrating sinful behavior uh, in the church. Uh, and, and sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Um, and we need to make sure that... Uh, you know, if, if something does not get uh, taken care of, then a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. You know, so somebody's, uh, you know, committing adultery and won't repent, wants to bring their girlfriend to church and sit two rows back from where their wife is and things like that. No, you can't, you know. Uh, but of course, we've got Christ's love even as we say, sorry, you know, you, you can't do that. Now it's time for church discipline. And 1 Corinthians 5 does cover a situation like that. But he makes clear, he says, even as I tell you that you got to, you know, um, not let sinful behavior go unchecked and unrepented of in the church, especially flagrantly and light in your face like that. He said, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not telling you to think that way toward all the people in the world. 1 Corinthians 5 says, or else you'd have to go out of the world. You know, those are the people that don't claim to know Christ. Their behavior is consistent with their lack of uh, statement. And so for them, you know, just keep living among them, trying to change them and see, see God change them and things like that. But when it comes to church, there's a, a, a foundational definition that if you're members in covenant together, then you're repenters together. And so you have to deal with those flagrant things. Well, that's compared with the eighth thing, honoring those who do fear the Lord. So he says he honors those who fear the Lord. So uh, in other words, the things of God are lifted up. We celebrate, uh, you know, those doing the right thing in the Lord, those acts of faith, honor those who are worshiping the Lord, fearing the Lord. And we ought to say, add a boy to them. And, you know, I have found uh, in my experience as a youth pastor and my experience as a pastor, every once in a while, somebody in the church, youth group or something like that, a young person comes along and they really are serving the Lord. And some of the most flack they get is from other kids in the youth group. Uh, you know, uh, hey, you know, don't take that stuff so seriously. I've seen it happen with adults, too, and say, oh, you know, you're just you're a little too excited about this, you know, uh, Charlie or uh, Ben or, uh, you know, whoever it is, you know. Um, I just, those names came out, you know, but I'm not thinking of specific examples. Um, and, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, they'll uh, get criticized by fellow churchgoers, you know, for serving the Lord. Now, Tabernacle has a lot of wonderful people that like to see people walking with the Lord, you know, so hopefully uh, youth group all the way up, we get that more encouraged than discouraged. Um, but, you know, we know that there are many churches where Ichabod's just about written over the door. The glory has departed. And we have people in this city that are in a church and they, they may be thinking about leaving their church because their church isn't preaching biblical doctrine and living by it. But in reality, the church has already left them. And some of you have friends in a different denomination and those they're making those decisions, aren't they? You know, about sticking the word with the word of God on things. 
And if the church decides to go with a denomination that has already left the Word of God and left God's teaching on human sexuality and things like that, many times there will be a person in there still trying to process it all, and they're seeking God, and they're saying godly things. And others will say, why do you keep rocking the boat? Why do you keep on talking about what the Scripture says? You know, don't you know times have changed, you know? And uh, sometimes those are the very leaders criticizing them. And so even in the past two weeks, you've got Catholic priests having to fight back against the words of their pope. You've got Anglicans around the world having to fight back against the wishy-washy words of the Bishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, you have things going on in the United Methodist denomination. You know, Baptists by nature are independent churches, and so uh, you know you have uh, sometimes that's a church by church thing. There's churches that have Baptists in the name in Danville that are very liberal on biblical issues and things, and churches like the Tabernacle that want to hold true to the Word. But you're despising the, the things that reject the Lord. You're honoring those who do fear the Lord. Uh, keeping your word, whatever the cost. Uh, so s swears to his own hurt and does not change. He says there, swears to his own hurt and does not change. Have you ever uh, kept your word and it wound up costing you? <laughs> Sometimes a uh, builder with a lot of integrity they want to put food on their table. And they know the builder down the road, right? He'll say, I can do that for this price. And I think as Christian builders sometimes are trying to get that set and feed their tables and things, uh, sometimes they have had a, they unfortunately put their own test before them. They're like, well, he said he could do it for that. I'll do it for this. And then when you add up the things you have to buy, you're going back to the person you'd say you did it for this. And, um, you know, you, I know men of integrity that have wound up eating a little bit as they, they got going because they bidded for lower than they could really bring it in at, and they didn't pass that along to the customer because of the promise on the front end. Uh, so it says here, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's just one example. Can you all think of other examples of an act of integrity like that where it may actually cost the person? Um, trying to think of some examples from students in school, you know, uh, where, um, you know, you, you do know what the teacher wants to know about that incident, you know, uh, and, uh, but it, you'll get hurt by others <laughs> if you wind up telling the truth, right? And I don't know if that's a good example or not, but you can think of others. Uh, sometimes it costs us to keep our word, and that's what David has in mind here. Um, Oh, go ahead. To Ellen. Um, we were on a conference, so to speak, for his bank, mm. and it was a new president for the bank, mm. and he noticed that we prayed before our meals. Yeah. And then eventually he told Ellen there was no place at work for that. Wow. And eventually he lost his job. Yeah. So um, there were other reasons that they attached to it, but. Yeah. He had gotten an excellent review mm. prior to that. So yeah. it was kind of like he took a stand, he didn't change. Yeah. And so yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, kind of sounds like it worked that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. The next one I have is lending fairly. Uh, he does not put out his money at usury. Am I right about that usury word? How would you define usury? Yeah. Yeah. 
excessive interest, right? So, uh, yeah, how about a payday loan, right? <laughs> we, yeah, I'll give you 10, but you'll have to give me uh, 20 uh, when you pay it back. And if you don't pay it back in time, I'll, I'll take 30 and break your arm uh, for being late. Um, crippling interest, and there's definitely examples of that. And of course, Proverbs is a great book to read about just wisdom in general, you know, in not uh, being, uh, you know, overly, uh, over, over, overly those who lend. Um, it doesn't speak about all lending, just especially takes on this usury. No taking advantage of a need you're helping meet to exhort. So you think about uh, the. Uh, the the uh, so we've got a disaster in our area, uh, and I'm the only one that can sell gas right now. So I'll knock the price up to five times what you usually pay, and things like that. Uh, those laws of supply and demand in the past sometimes meant gouging people uh, during a crisis and things like that. Uh, the eleventh one in this list is no taking a bribe against the innocent. So, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Uh, the books of uh, the law, uh, Mosaic law, made clear it doesn't matter if they're poor or rich. You don't take a bribe to help a poor man win his case or a rich man win his case. If you are a witness, you tell what you saw, not favoring one side or the other. Uh, you don't take a bribe to, to lie. Um, no corruption. Um, so, there may be statesmen where God lives, but not politicians, right? <laughs> It's a pretty good list for going to church, too, and probably a brilliant description of how life will be in the millennium. Uh, so I really like that. And now let's uh, look a little closer. So Psalm 15 may have actually been used in the tabernacle liturgy, um, the tabernacle liturgy, L-I-T-U-R-G-Y. Uh, just that's basically your order of worship as a means of getting people ready to worship. So um, what are the things God values? Here we are. We lay them out there. It might even been a song they sang, and it's for getting their hearts ready to worship. There's a nice Hebrew parallel, parallelism in verse 1. So abide and dwell are synonyms, right? Who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill. Tabernacle and holy hill or holy mountain are virtual synonyms. Uh, you look up, you go up to the tabernacle, you go up a hill or mountain. And so uh, these are things making you look up and beyond that to the Lord. Uh, so you got some nice Hebrew parallelism going on there. Well, the first three statements that we went over a minute ago have to do with integrity in general. So in God's house, people say and do the right thing always. That's the goal. That's what we um, ascribe to, what we hope is uh, true. Um, so that's what it's like in heaven and the earth. There's perfect integrity. The word integrity uh, comes you know, from a word for wholeness. When you're integrating your entire life, you don't have compartments. You know, We talk about the sin of having a compartmentalized faith where you're excited about Jesus on a Sunday, but you would do a double deal in a business on Monday. You would uh, treat your kids very badly during the week too, and then come back smiling next Sunday uh, you know, um, with those things being true. So there's integrity, saying and doing the right thing. The next three things have to do with friends and neighbors. You're not going to slander or discredit people. Uh, in God's house, people use their speech to build up. So those are your two uh, words there to write in there, to build up, not tear down. 
always. And there's even a way to give constructive criticism in the context of being for someone uh, that, uh, you know, a, a lot of the things I see said uh, in a church context stem from jealousy. Um, they, a jealousy of a person or um, generational differences that aren't fully appreciated. I, I think that Charles Wilson did a great job of talking about that uh, today a little bit, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll tell you, we, we still have work together to do because um, it's just really hard, you know, to have a church that has a good amount of young people around, people in the middle, people that are older too, because everybody likes things the way they like them. And you do sometimes get locked into thinking, you know, uh, the, the way that I uh, worship or the way that I dress or the way that that's just the best way to do it, you know. Um, and if we're not careful, uh, you know, we, um, we uh, won't see, you know, so I know what happens if the church doesn't grow. Everybody blames the pastor. Pastor couldn't get them in and keep them in. And yet I can point to specific examples of generational differences, people pushing young people away. But I'm going to get the blame if they don't stay. How come you can't win and keep young people, Pastor? Well, because many times you push them away. Don't push them away. <laughs> Be thankful they're here, you know. Uh, and so, you know, we just have to navigate all that. And if you, you know, if you don't make little changes year by year in the acceptable ways, you got a bunch of big changes to make one day down the road and stuff, you know. And I'm just so thankful, you know, uh, to be worshiping the Lord together. I'll tell you, I'm so thankful for Eddie, uh, who has his real finger on the pulse and says, okay, you know, I uh, want to include young people as we go. I um, want to celebrate all of our great uh, ones that have served in the choir forever. I want to bring others in. Uh, I want to sing songs that uh, reflect what people have heard on the radio that week, as well as ones that go way back. I even want to find a way... Uh, you know, I asked Charles today, I said, have you ever heard that, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds? He said, yeah, but not sung like that. And I was like, well, this is the only place you, you'll hear it sung like that. Because uh, Eddie put that music to it so we could sing that great hymn of, uh, you know, John Newton that has become among my favorite. So you could take that same song, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, look it up in your hymnal and sing it to the tune of Amazing Grace. Same guy wrote both. And Amazing Grace is the number one hymn in the world and I love it, but it doesn't mention the name of Jesus. And so he sang another song that says, how sweet the name of Jesus. And then, oh, that line, Jesus, you're my husband, shepherd, friend, my prophet, priest, and king. Oh, so good. How about that line that says, when we see you as you are, we'll praise you as we ought. You can spend all day thinking about that. Man, when we truly see Jesus as he is, we'll bring him the praise as God the Creator, and how He stepped into time, and how He bled on that cross. When we see you as so, uh, Eddie has put music with it where you know, and I don't know if you've heard the Chris Tomlin version of Amazing Grace where he uh, has the refrain in there and stuff like that, and that's worldwide. Eddie's is good enough to be worldwide like that too. So what he's doing is he's bringing us together and trying to move us forward as a church family, and that's hard to do. There's a constructive way to use your speech to build up and not tear folks down. In God's house, sin is not tolerated ever. Um, 
The second part of verse 4 states that people in God's house always keep their word. In God's house, people are promise keepers always. And then, of course, in verse 5, we saw that money is the subject in verse 5. People get into a lot of problems with mishandling money. Um, the problem here is not all interest. So Jesus himself commended wise investment in Matthew 25, told a whole parable about it. But in God's house, whether it involves money or not, taking advantage of people is not tolerated ever. And I speak that as somebody who, as a pastor, and you know, knows very little about cars and very little about this and that, I'd be a very easy person to take advantage of, you know. And so sometimes, uh, whether it's a dumb preacher uh, or somebody that doesn't know about, you know, how much stuff costs at their house or in their, uh, you know, systems and things like that, uh, it'd be very easy to take advantage of them. But in God's house, people. Don't try to take advantage of others. Um, sometimes people doing business with the church will try to take advantage of the you know, church's ability to help and, and different stuff. Uh, so we have to be very savvy and rely on each other's wisdoms. Now, of course, all these things in this psalm, and again, you look at it in one way, and it's like, oh, if I can't be in God's house if I don't do all those things, I'm in trouble. And you go, huh, I need a Savior. So even in the Old Testament, it's pointing you forward to Jesus to come. And then you look at the same things and go, huh, now that I'm on Team Jesus, you know, I want to do the things it talks about here, even though I won't do them perfectly. So all these things can be summed up under the great command to love God, to love others, and the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, on the back of your notes, I put a, a checklist, uh, not a checklist, but I put questions for you to meditate on, and you might want to use this in whatever context you would use it in. Um, so I just boiled all these things down to seven questions for yourself as you think about uh, readying your heart to worship, confessing sin before a time of communion, or anything like that. By the way, uh, we did not take communion on this fifth Sunday because we took it January 1st, so our next communion will be the next fifth Sunday, and we moved that around because of the unique opportunity we had to have uh, a 2 p.m. service on January 1st. So questions for the godly person to ask the Lord and listen for his response. Lord, do I live honestly in your eyes? What area of dishonesty do you want me to address in my life? And if God reveals something, then uh, let that happen. When I was first a believer, uh, the Lord really convicted me about how, how much of an exaggerator I had been before salvation. You know, uh, I had such a low self-esteem to make myself look good. I'd lie and exaggerate, you know, um, to try to impress people, you know. Uh, and uh, people would lie and exaggerate, try to impress me. I didn't realize until later uh, everybody was doing that, you know, and stuff. But I got saved, and I was like, Lord, since I've been such an exaggerator, help me. I saw in Psalm 51, David, in essence, say something like, um, I, I turned it into a prayer for me, teach me to desire truth in my innermost being. All the way down to my guts, Lord, help me to get it right and to, to desire veracity and truth. And uh, God changed me into that kind of person, which is really cool. And then we still go back there because it's so easy to lie to yourself. What does the world say? Trust your heart. Follow your heart. If you're feeling it, you ought to act on those feelings. What does God say? Don't trust your heart. It's desperately wicked. It'll get you off track. Things you feel you need to do will get you off track with God and with people so fast and blow up your marriage and this and that and the other things. Don't trust your heart. It's wicked, right? So... Number two, Lord, do I practice righteousness in your eyes? 
What area of unrighteousness needs to be rooted out of my life? And if God reveals something to you there, then come up with a strategy. Some of these things are such footholds and strongholds in your life, you, you need to ask these among others and be honest with guys so they can hold you accountable. Um, three, O oh Lord, have I slandered and discredited any another with my tongue? Who do I need to stop slandering and discrediting with my lips? Charles had a good word about that this morning too, didn't he, in that Philippians passage, you know. He gave us a specific example at lunch, you know, and it was a good example. Um, a, uh, I won't share it with you now. <laughs> uh, number four, oh Lord, do I hate the things you hate. Boy, that's a big one. I think that, I, I didn't say it very well earlier, but that's what that comes down to, a vile, vile stuff, right? Do I hate that which God hates or do I have my Christian version of lapping it up? A man wrote a book called Respectable Sins, you know. We're not as bad as sinners as those people, but we've basically made uh, some things okay in the church that the Bible calls not okay, and we give baptized language of those things. Lord, do I hate the things you hate? What worthless things do I too often talk about at church? It's fun to talk about football and give each other a little razz and stuff like that, you know. Uh, it's good to talk about, uh, you know, um, issues that concern us, especially around election times and, uh, you know, uh, but uh, we want to keep the main thing, the main thing at church, right? Get to the gospel, get to the word. Uh, unfortunately, politicians have made basic moral issues matters of discussion by, uh, you know, saying what God says isn't so or shouldn't be obeyed. So it, it, it's become a little bit of a quandary in our day. Um, so, you, you know, just to talk in a way morally about things sometimes puts you on one side or the other. Um, Lord, do I celebrate people who are two Christian examples? Who should I contact and express appreciation to? So there's a good one. Um, you see somebody doing the right thing, tell them so, you know. Uh, oh, Lord, am I a promise keeper? What promise have I failed to keep I need to make right? That's a dangerous prayer to pray uh, because, you know, we forget, don't we? And uh, if you really pray that with an uh, open heart before the Lord and a pad before you, it might be, oh, I told so-and-so I would do such-and-such, and I didn't do that. And, you know, the Lord has a way of revealing things to you from 10 years ago that you can still do to make it right. That person still thinks you're a person that breaks your word because of that, and you can go back and get that done, right? So the Lord reveals different things. Um, oh, Lord, if I truly help the least of these I come across... Who do I need to help that I've neglected to? Ooh, great questions. Um, I'm going to meditate some more on those this week. But before we close, let's just turn to another of the wisdom books, Ecclesiastes. I, I wonder if, Gary, this was your experience in Romania. The people that I was around in Romania, have, have uh, Howard's, have y'all been to Romania too? I wonder if this was y'all's experience too. Anybody else in here been over to Romania? Well, um, I was so impressed because the um, Baptist Christians I was among when I went uh, and did some ministry there, they would walk up to the church like we all walk up to church, right? But as they got right up to the church, they'd stop. And they'd pray before they went in. <laughs> they'd pray before they went in. Uh, and I thought that now that, that can become itself a meaningless ritual, you know. But the people I saw were sincere about, okay, I'm out here and I'm about to go into God's house. I've been trying to honor God all week long, but as I go in, we're going in to worship together. It's a holy time. 
I'm going to say things. I'm going to hear things. May they be holy things. I, I may get a chance to hear of a need I can meet and minister to. Lord, help me be responsive to you as I go in. And I thought about Ecclesiastes 5 that has kind of that uh, same spirit of self-evaluation and thoughtfulness uh, like Psalm 15 does. So here's what it says. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. <laughs> For they do not know that they do evil. I love that. Some things that we approach each other with about Sunday really should be an appointment for Monday or sometime else during the week. Let's take care of that. We don't want to keep each other from worshiping and from keeping our frame of mind the right way, you know. Uh, and sometimes we uh, bring something in that really could be handled later. Verse 2, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by as many words. Verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. So, wow. This whole section is really convicting. We go and we want to worship God while we're there. We want to encourage one another. Uh, we want to make sure that we, don't, uh, th that we don't speak too many cavalier words, you know, that uh, keep people distracted from worshiping God. Some people hear a joke during the week and they can't wait to tell their church friends that joke in Sunday school or wherever. And I'm not saying never do that. I'm just saying, you know, let's make sure we're spurring each other on to make the Lord's Day about worshiping the Lord. And it's special when we gather, you know. Um, and uh, so I thought that was a great passage. Had y'all seen that one before? And that got some good stuff in it? I'm gonna preach the Ecclesiastes at some point. Let's go ahead to the Lord in prayer. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.